Jeremiah 33. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time, while he was still shut up in the courts of the God. Thus says the Lord, who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have never, that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to find against the Chudeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from the city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel. I will rebuild them to, as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast. There shall be heard again the voice of Mary, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I restore the fortunes of the land at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks, and the cities of the hill country, and the cities of Shephelah, and the cities of Negev, and the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah. Flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, saith the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will fill Fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will never come at that their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on this throne, and my covenant with Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose, 
Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, I have not established my, my covenant with day and night, and fixed order of heaven and earth. Then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, and will have mercy on them. Here is the big thing we're thinking about tonight. What is God offering? What is God offering? It's the question that we come to as we come to the end in this series in Jeremiah. And the question, I think, matters to all of us. Uh, Maybe you are visiting church just for the first time. And you're wondering, what is it that Christians are all looking forward to? Uh, What is it that Jesus is promising? Maybe you've been knocking around here for ages, and you know some of the answer to that. But with the busyness of everyday life, it's easy for the big hope of the Christian life to drift from focus. Or maybe you're finding the Christian life pretty hard at the moment. And you're wondering if it's really worth sticking with. What is God offering anyway? Well, wherever you're at, it's a question I think that's important for each of us. What is God offering? Uh, We've spent these last four weeks dipping into uh, one of the high points of the Bible. I've suggested the high point of the Old Testament, and no one has been able to suggest a better one yet. Jeremiah 29 to 33. We're about 600 years before Jesus. The people of God are heading into exile. But God makes an extraordinary promise, which we looked at in our first week. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And it is that promise we've been exploring over these last four weeks. We've seen God to be perfectly loving and perfectly just and utterly committed to fixing his relationship with his people. As he put it last week, he will rejoice in doing us good. He is committed to it, heart and soul. I wonder if you've enjoyed thinking about that over the course of the last seven days. But so far, we haven't put much flesh on the bones. It's as though God has been saying, I'm committed to doing good for you. But it's not quite clear what that's going to look like. It's like an election manifesto that says, oh, we're really committed to doing good for this country. This is the Conservative Party manifesto from 2019. Get Brexit done. Unleash Britain's potential. Well, it turns out they didn't know how to do the first one, and we don't know what the second one means. That's not meant to be a particularly political party, a party political comment, though I realise it really was, and I apologise for that. (laughs) The point I was trying to make was that you, you can say something like that, unleash Britain's potential, but what does that actually look like? Well, God has been saying that he is committed to our good. What does that actually look like? What is the good that God's going to do? It's a question we get answered in chapter 33. And it couldn't come at a more important time in Jeremiah. Verse 1 tells us that we're at the same moment as we were last week. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guards. So he's still in prison in Jerusalem. He can still hear the Babylonian army just the other side of Jerusalem's walls about to destroy the city. We're 600 years before Jesus, and everything is falling apart. Even the palaces are being broken up so that they can make defenses against the invaders. But the big lesson of this chapter is that God is not done with them. He is utterly committed to his promises. It's as though he's saying to them, I will finish what I started. 
Sure, the old relationship is passing away, the one that the people broke. As we put it a couple of weeks ago, God is doing something radically new. Uh, It's changing everything. And yet, at the same time, it is entirely in line with everything God has promised. As we'll see, what he's doing fits within the vast sweep of everything the Bible has been saying up until this point. Jeremiah 33, if you like, stands at the crossroads between dozens of Bible ideas, reaching back into some of the Old Testament's greatest hits and forward to the climax of history. It's a passage designed to expand our horizons, whether you just want a reminder of what God is offering to us, or if you're coming for the first time to find out what is promised in the Bible. It's a great place for us to spend the next 20 minutes. And it starts by promising us the glory days. Point one on the handout, look forward to the glory days. They're coming back. Let's pick up the story from verse six. God speaking says this. Behold, I will bring to this city health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them, I'll cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. When you realize where Jerusalem is at this moment in time with the walls about to get knocked down, you can see how special these promises are, can't you? To those who were wounded, suffering, the onslaught of an enemy army. God promises healing. And to those who are destitute, taking their houses apart to form defenses against the invaders, God promises abundance of prosperity. And to those who are suffering the results of their rebellion, God promises cleansing from all the guilt of their sin. And to a city that is about to be so plundered that their name will become synonymous with defeated, God says, this city shall be to me a name of joy. And the description of Jerusalem as a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. It is to remind us of the days when Jerusalem was the envy of the nations. About 400 years before this, under the reign of King Solomon, Israel was living its best life. So prosperous that silver was more abundant than rocks. So secure that international visitors didn't come to attack. They came to admire it. So close in their relationship with God that it was the time they built the temple, a permanent home for him, an indicator that God would always dwell with them. Indeed, it's actually the temple that we return to in the following verses. Uh, We're told that once again we'll hear, verse 11, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, The voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Although the temple is about to be raised to the ground, God promises that one day they will bring thank offerings back to the house of the Lord. And they'll sing songs on the way. And they'll even sing what I like to call the temple theme tune. The song that follows in verse 11 is a line from the temple's opening day 400 years before. 2 Chronicles 5 to 7 tells us about the temple's opening. And we hear them singing, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, 
for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I won't try and sing it for you because I don't know the tune, and for that reason alone. Uh, Even when it comes up elsewhere in the Bible, it seems particularly often to be associated with the temple. And now, 400 years later, even as it's about to be destroyed, even as it seems that God is leaving them, God promises that the temple theme tune is going to get sung again. And they will bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Uh, Just as the theme tune of your favorite TV series tells you that it's uh, returned, That was The Mandalorian season three for those who are big fans this week. Well, so the theme tune to the temple will announce the return of the Lord to dwell with his people. The glory days are not a mere memory relegated to history. They're coming back. And that's why so many of the verses emphasize that what we're going to see is what's happened before. Verse seven, I will restore the fortunes of Judah. I will rebuild them as they were at the first. Verse 11, I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first. Verse 13, flocks shall again pass under the hands. I have to say, I've got no idea what that verse is talking about, which is particularly embarrassing since my name is Tim Shepherd. <laughs> Please kind of tell me if you've worked out what the sheep are there for. Uh, but here's the big point. The glory days are not over. They're coming back. Open the manifesto of a modern political party and you'll see a glossy photos of the candidates up for election. And there's an implication that this is what the politicians are going to bring about. Happy smiling nurses or a return to the prosperity of various industries that are currently struggling. Well, God's manifesto in Jeremiah 33 is filled with glossy pictures, if you like, of a safe and secure land. But they are not staged shots, not artificial photos taken in a studio. They are, if you like, archive footage. They're pictures taken from what's come before. The glory days might seem like they're dead and gone, but look forward to them. They're coming back. Indeed, they're coming back, and then some. The best is yet to come. Whether Jeremiah knew it or not, the direction he was pointing in was more than just a return to the best days of Israel. Health and healing, all their guilt dealt with, the nations fearing and trembling because of all the good that they hear God providing his people. Ultimately, the glory days to which Jeremiah is pointing could only be fulfilled in a perfect new world. And whether that's in Jeremiah's mind or not, that's the direction the rest of the Bible takes this in. Look forward to the glory days. They are coming back, and then some. The best is yet to come. And yet I wonder how often we let our thinking go in that sort of direction. How often do you daydream to these heights? Do you let yourself think about these things long enough to realize that this is what is coming? I confess, confess, I spent a lot of the time this week spotting lots of connections to other parts of Jeremiah or other parts of the Bible and not spending enough time thinking about the actual reality to which these point. They are describing the new creation that we, if we are Christians here, will inhabit. It is a concrete reality. And yes, they're using picture language, but it is the sort of picture language that's designed to get us thinking concretely about what's coming. What's coming? 
health and healing, prosperity and security, God dwelling with his people. I wonder, can you picture a day where you never have to see an ambulance coming past, never have to visit the doctor, never have to deal with NHS waiting lists, never have anything to report to the police? Can you picture a day when the home that you go back to is the dwelling place of God? Where God isn't just somebody that you know, but somebody you see face to face, somebody you live with. Some of us, maybe all of us, live in the moment. We're prone, aren't we, to think that this is all that there is and all that there will be. Jeremiah 33 stands at the crossroads of God's purposes. And it's as though God is saying, look back, look back to the glory days and know that that is what's coming. And then some. I am going to finish what I started. Of course, we find that hard to believe. Any reader of Jeremiah would struggle too. He was hearing this at the very moment that Jerusalem's walls were caving in. In fact, it almost seemed like the glory days were the very thing that God had abandoned. Aren't these great things that they'd been looking forward to, the things that had failed? Well, the answer is no. God hasn't abandoned this goal. He's just clarifying how we get there. Which takes us to point two, uh, which I have to confess is different from what I put on the handouts. Uh, Point one, look forward to the glory days. Point two, you might want to jot this in, trust God alone to bring them. Look forward to the glory days. Point two, trust God alone to bring them. Look at at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Do you see how it's going to come about? It's entirely by God's effort, by him raising up this righteous branch, this king in the line of David. Indeed, that's why it's called, the land is called this name at the end of that paragraph. The Lord is our righteousness. He is. He is where it comes from. Of course, that idea that God is the one who's bringing it is the sort of idea we've been exploring over the last few weeks. God is going to do it. But in the past, we've been emphasizing the newness of that. This changes everything. God is going to do something new. Now, Jeremiah 33 emphasizes how much this is in line with everything God had promised, provided you understand which promises we're talking about. There were some promises, for example, which God made that were conditional. Their old relationship through Moses, for example, had a big big if in it. If you obey my voice, things will go well. But if you don't, it will all fall apart. And when the glory days depended on conditional promises... It all fell apart. And yet God made several promises in the Old Testament that they couldn't screw up. Unconditional promises that did not depend on them. What I like to call God's greatest hits. And it is around these greatest hits that God is building his new covenants. Greatest hits like his promise to King David. Verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Or his promise to the priests, verse 18, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence, 
to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. God promised a king who would govern the people. And he promised priests who would secure a relationship with him. And what God is offering is in line with all of those great promises, those unconditional promises, those greatest hits. It is through them that he's going to bring about the glory days. In other words, he alone, on the basis of his promises and nothing that we do, is going to bring them. In fact, verse 22 seems to enfold another one of the greatest hits, his promise to Abraham. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. It's language God used to make a promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. And he does actually get mentioned a little bit later. But this time, God is folding that promise into the promise of uh, promises to David and Levi. It's a kind of mashup of the greatest promises in the Old Testament. Not just for lots of descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, but rather, verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister it to me. So it's not just three separate promises, a promise to Abraham, loads of descendants, a promise to David, a king, and a promise to Levi, a priest. Suddenly they're mashed up into one amazing promise, innumerable kings and priests, a whole nation of kings and priests, if you like. It's a kind of super promise. That's why I first thought I'd put for the title of this point, they're being super fulfilled. But what's key here? is that in a sense, the promise to be a nation of kings and priests isn't brand new. At the beginning of Israel's history, God said that would happen if they obeyed his voice. And now he's saying that it will happen on the basis of unconditional promises. Not if, definitely. God alone will do this. The closest we get to an if is verse 20, but it's not a big risk. Here is how it's not going to happen. Verse 20, if you can break his covenant with the day and his covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also his covenant with David, his servant, may be broken. Anyone think they're going to manage that? It's not very likely, is it? It's impossible. You cannot stop the earth spinning with the speed and the direction that it currently spins. It's rather comical to think that you could. No more then can you break God's promise to open his arms and make of his people a nation of kings and priests. Because it doesn't depend on you. If you're anxious that the new creation promises won't come about, maybe you're putting too much trust in what it is that you can achieve. Try and break God's covenant with the day and the night. See if you can stop the sun from rising or change the direction of the earth's spin. Go on, go on, have a go. And until you can, well, why not take every new day as a reminder that God will fulfill his promises? Every time the sun sets, take it as a reminder that the glory days are coming. Every time the sun rises, Remember that one day it will rise on God's new creation. 
Uh, you might have questions about that bit. It's a little bit complicated. Uh, I'll be down here at the end. Please do come and ask me questions. Uh, there's all sorts you might want to ask about that. But if you have zoned out, now's the time to come back in. It gets a little bit simpler, I hope, at this point, in spite of what it looks like on the handouts. For now, see that Jeremiah 33 stands at the crossroads of God's purposes. And God is saying, the glory days are coming. But now they depend on unconditional promises. I will finish what I've started. In fact, he has already begun to do so, which is the last point on the handout. It's already begun. Even if we were back then standing with Jeremiah at this crossroads of God's purposes, we would have enough reason to believe that this is going to come true. But of course, we don't stand in the same place as Jeremiah. We are two and a half thousand years later. And it turns out a lot has happened since then. In fact, the story of the rest of the, the, rest of the Bible is the account of these promises coming true. And for those who like tables, there's a table on the handout to try and show some of how these promises are being fulfilled. For those who prefer pictures, there's a timeline underneath. And that is mainly for you to go away if you want to see some of the ways that uh, these promises get picked up. But let's take that highlighted row as an example. Verse 11 of Jeremiah 33 is this great promise for the temple theme tune to come up again, the temple to be rebuilt. In other words, for God to dwell with his people. Well, just as Jeremiah promised, 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar came to power, the people returned to the land and started to rebuild the temple. You can read all about it in Ezra 3. And as they laid the foundation stone, this is the song that they started to sing. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The promise was being fulfilled. And yet, Ezra tells us it wasn't quite there. It's as though some, well, some of them were singing a bit off key because the temple wasn't all that it had been. Their old men on their Zimmer frames could still remember what the temple was like before the exile. And they looked at this new one and they were devastated to see how rubbish it was. Jeremiah was sort of being fulfilled, but only in a small way. Now, it's fast forward 500 years later to see God really start to fulfill these promises with the coming of Jesus. And you can look up some of those other references to see how Jesus is the great promised king in the line of David, or how Jesus is the great priest that we need. But maybe lots of us will be familiar with the beginning of John, when he says that Jesus is God come to dwell with his people, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. God established his temple in Jerusalem again as he himself walked among the people. In fact, it was even greater than the temple because as Jesus ascended into heaven, God came to dwell inside every one of his people by his spirit. Every Christian now is a temple of God's. Already we're starting to see something of the glory days. Already God alone is bringing them about. It's as though we open the manifesto and we see these amazing promises and then we look around and realize that the government has already started to put them into practice. Slightly hard to picture that, isn't it? Because any politician, it's not a comment about the Conservative Party, struggle to keep their manifesto promises. But imagine that everything was progressing exactly as you expected on cue. Promise after promise being fulfilled. Well, of course, the best is yet to come. God's promises are the gift that keep on giving. But you know the rest of them are going to happen, don't you? 
There will come a moment when God's promise to dwell among his people is fulfilled in the greatest way imaginable. Not the hidden indwelling of the spirit, but living face to face with God's basking in the light of his glory, walking beside him as if in the Garden of Eden. As Revelation 21 shows us, the temple theme tune will crescendo to its final fulfillment. Fortissimo, blasting through creation, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. The glory days will be back, and then some, and then some. The best is yet to come, and it is coming. Some of the promises have been fulfilled. I think of the forgiveness that we now have if we're Christians. The fact we have a king in Jesus, a priest who secures our relationship with God. Some of them have been fulfilled in part. That idea of God dwelling with us. We're part of the way there. Still other promises are basically waiting for the future. God's promise for healing his promise for abundant prosperity. You can check out that table if you want to see those promises traced to the rest of the Bible. But the key point is this. God is finishing what he started. It's already begun. We don't just stand at the crossroads of God's purposes. It is, if you'll forgive mixing metaphors, as though we've been taken most of the way there to the finish line. Won't you trust him to take you the rest of the way over? It's easy, isn't it, to relegate this all to an imagined world where we think things might be better. A simple exercise in wishful thinking. Pie in the sky when you die. Maybe you're not a Christian and you think that is what Jesus is offering. Well, if that's you, get a Christian friend to open with you an account of Jesus' life and see how even 2,000 years ago, these promises have started to get fulfilled. If you are a Christian and you're looking through the, well, any part of the New Testament, see how these amazing promises are already starting to be fulfilled around us. God is bringing back the glory days and he's already started. But the best is yet to come. Trust him for the rest. Indeed, keep trusting him. Tragically, there are those who have abandoned Jesus, run away from these promises for a cheap imitation of them. They maybe lose patience with God and go after the world instead. Some of them may perhaps get hold of the best that this world has to offer, but it is nothing, nothing next to what God is offering here. Healing, abundance of prosperity, forgiveness, renown, God himself living with us. God is promising nothing less than a whole new world. What could this world offer which even begins to compare? It will be hard while we wait. But as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning, God will finish what he started. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Thank you for all the promises that you have made to us. Thank you for making promises to us that do not depend on us. And thank you for how glorious those promises are. We pray that we would be those who look forward to them, those who ponder them, who dwell on them, and who cling to them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.